0: Chapter five, and it says in verse one, then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, they had been in Capernaum at this time. They had crossed over. Now, from Capernaum is on the north uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. Now they're moving down towards the uh, the the middle of the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where Gadara is. And uh, it says. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling amongst the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. It says, Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither uh, could anyone hold him. Now there are a lot of people who try to tell us that um, all the so-called cases of demon possession, as they say, in the Bible is nothing more than mental illness. Uh, these are just people that had schizophrenia and some other mental disorders. Uh, these, these, these simple fishermen and things that followed you. they thought they were demon-possessed, but really modern medicine has just shown that there's no such thing. It's just mental illness that they assumed was demon possession. I think that probably over the years there have been many cases of mental illness that have been mistaken for demon possession, especially you know, in the Middle Ages and all. But let me tell you this, demon possession is an absolutely real thing, an absolutely real thing. I told this story before, I'll just briefly share it again. Years ago, when I was at a um, pastor's conference. Uh, Calvary Chapel, I just got back and it's it's always around June or uh, beginning of June, end of May and at that time it was up in Twin Peaks uh, which is a mountain area uh, out about an hour and a half north of uh, Costa Mesa and uh, Calvary owns a beautiful um, retreat center up there in the mountains and so we were there for our pastor's conference and it was the evening uh, on Tuesday I believe, Tuesday night and we were uh, involved in worship And uh, I usually have my eyes closed when I worship, but for some reason I opened my eyes. And just to see someone coming down the aisle, and Pastor Chuck was sitting on the stage off to the side just worshiping, because he was teaching that evening. And so somebody walked over, and I saw him lean over and whisper to Chuck something, and Chuck acknowledged it, and I didn't think anything more of it. I went back to worship. And then before Chuck actually taught, he said, as he got up, he said, uh, he said, look, I just got word that our Calvary Chapel here in Twin Peaks He's got a little situation going on. Apparently, uh, right at this moment, they're dealing with a, with a case of demon possession. And some of the pastors have gone over and are praying for this person, and we ask you to pray right now, and so he stopped and led us in prayer. And then he went on to teach. Of course, after that, you're thinking, what is going on? Well, uh, I talked to some of the guys who actually went over to the uh, church over there in Twin Peaks, and here's what had happened. A woman had come into the, uh, into the fire department, which was actually next door to the church. And, uh, and she needed some help, a little tiny thing. She wasn't that big. She wasn't a, a big woman at all, a very small woman, thin. But one of the firemen was a, was a believer. And as soon as she came in and started to talk whatever she came in for, he knew something was wrong. In fact, he had a discernment what the problem was. And he said, you know what? We're not going to be able to help this woman. We need to take her next door to the church. Took her next door to the church. There was The pastor had a parsonage there. They knocked on the door. He came out, and uh, as he um, came out to talk to this woman, uh, he discerned something was wrong, and he began to talk to her. And as soon as he said the name of Jesus Christ, she went berserk, basically. You know, you're talking some big firemen were there. They couldn't hold her down. She took the pews, which were bolted to the floor, and ripped them right out of the floor. At this point, he knew that he had to get some reinforcements. so he knew we were down the road at the conference, Bible Conference Center. He called over to the, to the main office, and they talked to some of the pastors, and several carloads went over there. Raul Reese was one of the pastors who went over, and uh, Raul came out to our church not long after that. He was in town, and we had him come out to speak. And I asked him about it. He said, Phil, I have been all over the world. I have been to the jungles of South America. I have seen demon possession I have never seen a case like this. This woman was absolutely loaded with demons. I mean, you're talking about the voices, uh, stuff coming out of her mouth, everything. You know, it's like you're watching a movie. And they cast the demons out through prayer and witnessed to her and said, look, uh, they will come back if you do not fill your heart right now with Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And so she prayed there to receive Jesus Christ and was then forever set free. And I bring this up because this is a real thing. Uh, I personally do not believe a Christian can be demon-possessed. I believe that, uh, that a Christian is owned by Jesus Christ, that he fills their hearts. The Bible says the Spirit of God indwells every believer. He has the spirit of light and truth, not lies and darkness. And so when the Spirit of God fills a person's heart and life, that person cannot be also filled with the demon and Satan and so on. We can be oppressed. We can be, you know, we can give in to the devil and, and and fall into temptation, but when you're talking about possession, you're talking about ownership. And as a child of God, you are owned by the Lord. But this is a very real thing. Uh, the, anyone who has ministered in any kind of third world countries, uh, it's it's very common. It's so common down in the third world countries that people don't even get freaked out about it because they're so used to it. And uh, when I was talking to some of our pastors who went over to India, uh, they dealt with some demon possession over there and uh, uh, it's just commonplace. Of course, I believe a lot of people are demon possessed in our society but because we think ourselves so sophisticated and enlightened, the devil plays the game and hides himself. In those third world countries, they are very aware of demonic things and so he just manifests himself he controls by fear. Here he controls by ignorance. But he's trying to control people. And so we see a situation here where actually there was two men uh, does Mark only mention one here? Um, he only mentions one but there were actually two. This one was the more dominant of the two individuals but um, here was a man who was so possessed by demons he he, he would live in the tombs. When we went to Gadara we saw the area where this man probably lived. Isolated, in the caves. I mean, they tried to bind him with chains. The chains couldn't hold him because there's this incredible inhuman kind of strength. Verse 5 says, And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. I don't think there's a more pathetic, heartrending verse in the Bible to talk about how someone's life could be so devastated by the power of Satan. And let me say this, I don't believe anyone can be demon-possessed who has not opened themselves up to it. And how do you open yourself up to it? You mess around with the occult. You mess around with the occult. I am very concerned about the young people in our society today. Two of the hottest shows on TV, Charmed, and what's the other one? Uh, uh, Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. There's, a, there's another one or something. Sabrina... Sabrina. And if you ask young people who get into this, why are you getting into this? Every one of them will tell you, because I want power. I want power to cast spells over my enemies. I want power to make this guy or this girl fall in love with me. The occult promises power. That's why people get involved in it. And sure, Satan will give you some power as a hook to draw you in. And then when he's got his hooks into you, he just controls you and destroys you. And if if a person who's into the occult or into Satanism, thinks that the devil loves them but not anyone else. I got news for you, he hates them just as much as he hates Christians. He'll just use them until he's used them up and he'll destroy them. I mean, everybody that I've ever heard about who was deeply involved in the occult, who hadn't gotten saved, either died of drug overdose or, or alcoholism or suicide because the devil has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. This is a serious issue today. And when the Bible talks about these things, it's not just allegories or just... You, these, this is real stuff. You know, and I believe it was a lot of people in this country who are demon-possessed, and you wouldn't even know it by looking at them. Because the demons don't always manifest themselves. Uh, you might know somebody real well who's deeply involved in the occult, you don't even know that. And they are demon-possessed. But it hasn't been manifested. We've had people come to the church, I'm convinced, who were demon-possessed. Not that we've had a full-blown manifestation of it, but we have seen some of the evil fruit, And uh, so be aware of this. Be aware of this. And here is this person who obviously was involved in the occult in some way, and look what Satan has done to him. It's cost him his health. It's cost him his family. It's cost him fellowship and community. He's out in the tombs night after night, mourning and and wailing and just the misery is just, it's heartrending to look at a situation like this here's a father, probably a husband, probably who's taken away from his family because he's opened the door to Satan and now Satan has come in and sure, gave him a little power initially but look what it's cost him that's the way the devil always works you want a little pleasure? sure, I'll give you some pleasure it's going to cost you people, you want a little power? okay, I'll give you a little power it's going to cost you the devil always works like that. It's always the, the get-now-and-pay-later program with the devil. you know. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. The Greek word simply means to bow down and prostrate yourself in front of a superior being. Now here the demons in this man are going to spend all eternity in hell, and yet they still have to bow the knee to Jesus Christ because he is Lord of all. Just like the Bible says someday everybody is going to bow the knee to Christ. Those people who have received him in this life will bow the knee with great joy and say, Lord, finally, the Lord God reigns. Those people that rejected him all their lives will finally bow the knee in submission to him and say, you are Lord of all, but by that time, it'll be too late for them. So they come, they bow before Jesus, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And he said to him, come out of the man unclean spirit. Unclean spirits or demons are simply fallen angels. In the beginning, God created the angels before he laid the foundations of the earth. In fact, the book of Job tells us that the sons of God, the angels, shouted for joy the, the day that God laid the foundation of the earth. So they were already around before the creation of, of the earth. And we know the story because uh, Isaiah uh, and Ezekiel both tell us what happened, that Lucifer was the chief angel. He was the head guy over all the other angels, and he wanted to be, he was perfect in beauty and wisdom and so on. Yet there was pride in his heart. He wanted to, to be like the Most High, So he led a rebellion in heaven and drew a third of the angels with him to revolt against God. And of course, uh, there's no one that's going to be able to conquer over God. And so they fell. They became fallen angels. And they became demons. Some of them are more fierce than others. Uh, In fact, the Bible says that the angels that actively worked in the days of Noah to pollute the human race with demon seed. There's some interesting stuff going on in Genesis chapter 6, how that all flesh had corrupted itself upon the earth, and, and uh, I believe that demons, uh, who did, angels who did not keep their proper habitation, as Jude says, came down to the earth and cohabitated with human women in an endeavor to contaminate the human race with demon seed so Messiah could not be born. And it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God and was pure in his genealogy Uh, The the Hebrew implies uncontaminated. And so God wiped the entire world out except for no and his family uh, because he was a believer and trusted in God, but also because God kept his family pure from this demon contamination. But these angels that tried to pervert the human race this way, Jude says God has kept them in chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. But there is coming a time, the book of Revelation tells us, that God is going to open these, this bottomless pit where these angels are chained, who are so exceedingly fierce that in one hour they kill a quarter of the human beings upon the earth. Uh, so God, uh, in his mercy and grace, binds some of these demons because if they were allowed to roam free, there would be none of us left. So God keeps things in check. But, but these, are, uh, these are unclean spirits, demons, fallen angels, and verse 9 says, Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I don't know. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. Are we talking about the same kind of a legion? I don't know. Maybe there's just many, many demons. Maybe not that many, but uh, quite a few. Okay, quite a few who are uh, taking up residence in this man. And verse 10 says, Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains, and so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us uh, to the swine that we may enter them. These are disembodied spirits who who desire to be embodied in something. They desire to to inhabit some living thing, either a a human being or even animals. In fact, the whole idea behind black cats and witchcraft is they are um, inhabited by familiar spirits. And so these demons can inhabit animals or, or people. And so they said, you know, don't send us out of the country. There's a, there's a herd of swine over there. Let us enter into them. And verse 13, And at once Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and they, the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, some some people have questioned, did Jesus have a right to destroy 2,000 of these animals and take away from their owners their livelihood? I mean, is that right for him to do that? The world is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. He can do whatever he wants. But let's just put it this way. Um, What country were they in? The country of the Gadarenes. That was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now you remember the, in the Old Testament when, when Moses sent out the, the, the 12 spies and 10 of them brought back an evil report. Joshua and Caleb brought back a good report. And the people listened to the 10 evil spies and said, we're not going to go in, the enemy's too big, it's too hard. We're we going to go back to Egypt. And so God judged them and said that this generation will not enter the promised land until it's all you know died off and the, your children will enter in. And so they wandered for 40 years. After the 40 years, they came now back to the border of the land. The wandering is over with. Now God's going to lead them now. That generation's all dead. The kids are grown up. Now God's going to lead this generation to the promised land. Just as they're ready to do this, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh come to Moses and say, you know, we kind of like it over on this side of the Jordan. We have flocks and herds. This is good grazing country. We don't want to inherit land on the other side of the Jordan. We want to stay here. Moses went ballistic. He's like, are you crazy? Don't you remember what your fathers did 40 years ago? They wouldn't enter into the promised land. And, and look how God judged the whole nation because of it. What are you saying? And they said, no, 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 you got us wrong. Hear us out. We'll enter in with our brethren and fight alongside of them until we conquer the land. But when we do conquer the land, then we want to come back over in the east, on this side of the Jordan and have our inheritance here. Well, this was the area where the Gadites settled. Those are the tribe of Gad. This was Jewish country. Some commentators say, "Well, this was Gentile country," so uh, we're not sure why Jesus would have had the demons wipe this whole herd of swine out. I don't think it was Gentile country. Sure, it was in general it was Gentile country, but this area was the area that the Gadites settled into. This was Jewish country. And what does God say to His people about pigs? They don't have to have any dealings with these animals. They're unclean. So Jesus was in his, obviously, I mean, when I see his rights, he's the right to do whatever he wants, but the idea is that these were his people. They knew better. This was an illegal business. So Jesus was not only freeing a man from demon infestation, he was also taking away kind of a black mark from his people as he cleansed them of this illegal business. Uh, raising pigs, I mean for a Jew that's an abomination and so they all ran violently down the hill and uh, drowned in the sea and it's interesting the reaction of the people in that area when they heard the news it says in verse 14 so those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city in the and in the country and they went out to see what it was that it happened. The whole town comes out now, the whole of the whole area actually. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and, and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Sitting, clothed and in his right mind. He had no rest day or night. Now he has peace. His shame, he was naked. Now he's clothed. And in his right mind, he's able to think clearly. This guy's saved. That's a picture of somebody who's been saved. We were restless. We have peace. We had shame because of our sin. We have been covered with the blood of Christ. We were not thinking properly before we got saved. Now we're in our right mind. We know it's important. We know it's true. This guy's saved. You think that the people that knew this guy would have rejoiced? Oh, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. This guy was tormented for years. His family, I mean, they've been separated for years. Could you stay and help other people in our area be free of this kind of thing? No, they didn't say that. They began to plead with him, verse 17, to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat... He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim into capitalists all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. First of all, it's pretty sad when people are more so greedy and so selfish. They are more concerned about making money than they are human suffering. I mean, they didn't care about this guy. They were just concerned if Jesus hung out any longer in their area, it might impact the business in the area even more in a, in a negative way. It wasn't about this guy being liberated, it wasn't about him being you know, healed or set free and, and restored to his family, whatever. They were only concerned about the bottom line, their profit margin. It's so sad to see people who are so selfish and greedy they don't care about anybody else but themselves. It's all about making money. Whether you're talking about the drug dealer on the street corner who inflicts misery on families and people just to make money and justifies it by saying, well, I'm not forcing them to take it. Or you're talking about some, some uh, executive at an Enron or a WorldCom or something like that who, who just sucks every ounce of resource out of the business and then lets it go belly up and the people that have been working there for 25 or 30 years have nothing. They have no pension left. They have nothing. And they justify it. It's sad. And those people are going to stand before God someday. Definitely. But this guy wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, no, 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 you go home. You go home to your family. You tell your family and friends the great things that God has done for you. That's a standing order for every one of us who gets saved. Before we can follow Jesus out into the mission field, he says, go home first. You'll be a witness there. Evangelism starts at home. You go home and, I don't know much, Lord. You know enough to tell people what God's done for you. Just start with your testimony. You don't have to have a degree in theology. Just tell people what Jesus has done for you, and believe me, he'll build on that. So this guy went all over the place after he told his friends and family. He began to go throughout the whole area talking to people about Jesus and all that he had done for him. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed and she will live. I don't think there's anything more painful for a person to go through than to be a parent and to see your child sick. Very sick little girl. She was so sick she was at the point of death. And he didn't know where to turn. And all of a sudden he hears that Jesus, the healer, the prophet, is in the area. He quickly goes to him and says, "You know, Lord, please come quickly with me. My little girl is is very sick. And I know that if you lay your hands on her, she's going to be made well. And so Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. They're pressing on every side, you know. You ever made your way through a, a real crowd, you know how that goes? You know, they're, they're thronging him. They're, everyone wants a piece of him. You know, they're push, pushing up against him. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. She was hemorrhaging for 12 years. And had suffered many things from many physicians. If you've ever been really sick and had to go to a lot of doctors, you know exactly what she was going through. Sometimes you go through a lot of doctors before you find a competent one. And she had suffered these things for many years and spent all her money on physicians and was no better off, but rather grew worse. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now she had faith. And her faith said, I know he can heal me. All I have to do is touch, Matthew says, the hem of his garment, and I'm going to be made well. And she did. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. She just felt it immediately. The hemorrhaging was gone. She was well. Now, you have to understand something about a flow of blood. In the Jewish law, a woman during her monthly menstrual cycle was considered unclean. And anything she touched would be considered unclean. And anybody who touched anything she had touched would be unclean. So you have to understand something here. This is not just a physical issue she's dealing with. It's a social issue. It's a spiritual issue. During the the feast days of the year, during the special Jewish feasts, her family couldn't come anywhere near her. If they wanted to participate in the Passover or Feast of Tabernacles, they couldn't come in contact with her. Her husband couldn't lay in the same bed with her, lest he be defiled and be unclean and couldn't participate. So she was was ostracized by her own family at certain times of the year. But also Jewish law says while she had this this flow of blood, she couldn't come to the temple. She couldn't be in fellowship or communion with the people of God. And she couldn't worship God. She was ostracized. Not only did she deal with the physical problems, I mean, constantly losing blood, she must have been terribly anemic. Twelve years she was suffering with this. Can you imagine that? Twelve years to be away from the people of God. Can't go to church, all your friends, you can't fellowship with them. Your family can only have limited contact with you. I mean, you've spent all your money on on doctors. And now her last hope, Jesus, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made well. And he's in the crowd, and she sees him, and she just lunges probably and grabs for his garment, touches it, and instantly she is healed. She feels it. Now I think she just wanted to slip back through the crowd and slip away, rejoicing what God had done, but wasn't going to be that way. Jesus stopped, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Now the disciples think this is kind of humorous. They said to him, You see the multitude thronging you? And you say, Who touched me? Lord, who isn't touching you? Are you kidding me? Everyone's touching you. and You say, Who touched me? Matthew tells us that Jesus said, No, no, I perceive that healing power has gone out of me. Who touched me? And looking around to see uh, her... Who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, some people have said, Well, what's the difference between something like this and positive confession? I mean, she said, I know I'm going to be healed if I touch his garments. Isn't that what positive confession teaches? No, not really. Positive confession is the belief that the power is in the words. She believed the power was in Jesus, but it could be transferred to her through even a touch of his garment. This was not an uncommon thing, by the way, uh, Mark tells us earlier, and he tells us again later on, that uh, a lot of people reached out to touch Jesus' garment, and they were healed. And she was one of them. Uh, But positive confession says... You're sick, you say, I'm not sick. And you're walking around hacking and running the nose. I'm not, you got a cold? No, I don't got a cold. <laughs> now, that's a positive confession, okay? Where you, you know, the, pro, the, the difference is, she said, if I just touch the hem of this garment, I will be made well. And she was made well, okay? That was the power of God. That was the power of God. Now, what was different from the touch of the crowd and then her touch? Everyone else was touching Jesus. They were coming in contact with him, but I don't get the impression they were receiving healing or uh, something else in their bodies, yet she touched him and was made well. The difference is that her touch was a touch of faith. Whereas a lot of people today come in contact with Jesus. They go to church, go to Bible study, and yet they don't have any faith that he's going to do anything in their lives personally. So they come in contact with him and never receive from him because faith is the conduit that allows the power of God to flow from God to us. And that's an important point, isn't it? I mean, this was a point of contact to release faith. James said, If any are sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and let them lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. And when they anoint them with oil, the prayer of faith will save the sick. Well, the power is not in the oil, and the power is not in the laying out of hands. The power is in the faith that is released when a person says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to, I, I believe that God can heal me, and I'm going to come and, and, and have the elders lay hands on me. And when they lay hands on me and anoint me with oil, it's like, it's like your faith is released at that moment. And God will often honor that and will give you the healing. So a lot of people who are coming into contact with Jesus but aren't really reaching out by faith and touching him, and so they're not receiving. It's not like we can say, well, if I just have enough faith, God has to do anything I want. That's not how it works. I think that God was working in her and giving her what the Bible calls a gift of faith. There's three kinds of faith that the Bible talks about. Saving faith. Then there is just practical faith that is grown over time as we walk with the Lord. We exercise this kind of faith, and it grows. Then the Bible talks about spiritual gift of faith. And I believe this works in conjunction with a miracle, where God wants to work with a healing or a miracle, and he gives to a person oftentimes a gift of faith where they just believe with all their heart that it's going to happen. I've experienced this, not that it's been in relation to a miracle, but there have been times when uh, I have just all of a sudden just believed without a shadow of a doubt that God was going to work in a certain area. Whether he was going to save somebody or heal somebody, or something was going to happen that I was praying about, all of a sudden the faith was just so overwhelming that it was going to happen. I just didn't doubt at all. And I believe at that moment God gave to me a gift of faith because he wanted to work in a very supernatural way. Now, that's a special gift that God gives on certain occasions for a certain purpose. We all live with everyday faith, and that has to be exercised each day as we just trust in him and walk with him and so on. But there are special times when he wants to do a special work and will often give to us as the recipient of that work he he wants to do, or maybe he gives the faith to us for someone else that we're praying for. And I believe that God gave to this woman a gift of faith. She just knew in her heart that if she touched Jesus' garment, she was going to be made well, and she was. Now, why did Jesus stop with her, though, when other people had touched him and received healings? He stopped, though, singled her out, and she thought he was going to maybe yell at her, He praised her for her faith, but why did he stop? Because he knew, no doubt, that Jairus' daughter had already died. You know, he knew that. But he also knew what he was gonna do. Now, can you imagine Jairus? He knows time is limited. He needs to get Jesus Christ to his little girl's bedside as quick as possible. And so they're fighting their way through the crowd. Can you imagine the, the, the panic on this guy's face? Please get out of the way as he's trying to get Jesus to his daughter. As quickly as possible. And here comes a woman and the whole thing stops and and Jesus pauses and deals with her. And Jairus, I'm sure, is just going crazy. And then word comes to him, what he did not want to hear. It says, verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I mean, I can't even imagine what Jairus must have felt at that moment. And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jairus was a ruler of a synagogue. And he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. That was a custom back then, when somebody died, to show the most grief you possibly could was a, was a sign of, of love. And so if you had money, you would actually hire people who were professional mourners, wailers, Okay, where they would wail at the top of their lungs. And the idea was that the more uh, misery and sadness and grief surrounding this person's death, the more you showed you, your love for this this person, you know, and, and so here comes Jesus now, and you have these professional wailers who are, who are screaming and crying and big tumult and wailing loudly and when Jesus came in he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. It says, and they ridiculed him. Matthew tells the, they laughed him to scorn. They mocked him. What are you, an idiot? They, they were openly mocking him for making such a seemingly stupid statement. Jesus responds by putting them all outside. and He wasn't gentle about it. He commanded that they get out. And when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and those who were with him and entered where the child was laying And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Actually, that's Aramaic. Which literally means, it's even more endearing, it literally means my little lamb, arise. Took took her by the hand. And just very sweetly, Jesus just had that way especially with children and uh, just loved them and he said my little lamb arise and immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and when they were overcome with great amazement uh, they were overcome with great amazement and he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat they didn't want to, he didn't want a mob scene if this got out he couldn't minister anywhere so he tried to keep it quiet. Now, why give her something to eat? Because he wanted them to know she wasn't a ghost. See, they believed that ghosts did not eat. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead and his disciples were like, is this a ghost or is it really him? He said, do you have anything here to eat? See, and that was just to prove that, no, I'm not a ghost, all right, it's me. He wanted them to know this little girl was not a ghost. But it's interesting. It's like the Holy Spirit is just trying to tell us, look, he makes it a point to tell us that the woman was hemorrhaging for 12 years. He also makes it a point to tell us that this little girl was 12 years old. Now, that's interesting. It seems that the Holy Spirit is trying to draw some kind of a parallel, some kind of a uh, something that would kind of cause us to relate the two. Of course, for 12 years, this woman had nothing but misery and, and, and suffering as she was hemorrhaging all this time. Gone to doctor the doctor, nobody could help her. Uh, Jesus was her last hope. During that same 12 year period, Jairus had his little girl. And of course, there's no greater joy to a father than his children, but especially I think of little girls to their dads. I mean, it's a special relationship. And so for 12 years, he had nothing but joy and happiness. That other woman, she had nothing but sorrow, misery, and pain. And it's interesting that their, their two lives will intersect at this point it's like the hoist is just trying to tell us look sometimes life will bring us sadness and misery sometimes joy and happiness but you know what even though we've suffered with misery for a long time in a moment Jesus Christ could change it all and you know even if we've had great joy sometimes it can be taken from us and we have to be ready for that you know there's no guarantees in the Christian life that we're going to have nothing but happiness and joy. Joy is inward, of course. We will have joys because it's based on Jesus Christ, but but our outward circumstances, God doesn't guarantee us that we're going to only have happy things.